0: Welcome to Strictly Facts, a guide to Caribbean history and culture, hosted by me, Alexandria Miller. Strictly Facts teaches the history, politics, and activism of the Caribbean and connects these themes to contemporary music and popular culture. Wagwan everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Strictly Facts, your favorite guide to Caribbean history and culture. One of the favorite things that I found most interesting about the Caribbean is our interconnectedness, which in many ways is due to movement and migration, especially instrumental in you know, certain engineering projects and things of that nature, which we'll be talking about today. And so in this week's episode, we're joined by Dr. Keisha Corinaldi to talk about the Caribbean influence, connectedness, and activism brought on by our movements to build the Panama Canal as well as her upcoming book, Panama and Black, Afro-Caribbean World Making in the 20th Century. Dr. Cornaldi, thank you so much for joining us today. Please tell us a bit more about yourself and how you got interested in doing your research.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Alexandria. And I say that my interest in writing about Panama comes from my own roots in Panama. I was born in Panama and migrated with my family, uh, as a child to Brooklyn. So it's kind of a fascination in looking at the Central America, Caribbean, North America connection is a key component that has informed a lot of my thinking about how do we make um, sense and also how do we extend to the rest of the world this appreciation for this world that I grew up with, where there was Spanish, English, patois, like reggae, and all these things together that it's kind of hard to put into words and for me having had an opportunity to actually spend a good chunk of my childhood with my great-grandmother who also had um, memories about her own sort of mother's travels from Jamaica and realizing that I didn't really know a lot about what happened after in terms of after the canal and the kinds of lives that were made and the people that um, myself and my family formed multiple generations of. And so that desire to get a bit more information on that drove me to archives and talking to people and getting, you know, family to sort of enter intense debates about various things that i found along the way.
0: Thank you so much. I think, you know, that's one thing that I've really loved about Strictly Facts. Beyond, you know, getting to the specifics of history, many of our families are obviously a part of this story. And I think it especially influences why a number of the people we've had on Strictly Facts do the work that we do. And so firstly, before we get directly to talking about migration and things, I wanted to give a brief sort of backdrop on that sort of history of how the canal came to be. And so First of all, as we've discussed in, you know, various other episodes, there are these sort of arbitrary wordings or frameworks, you know, that have sort of been created to divide South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. But our connections, they haven't been hindered by the bodies of water between us. And so in talking about Panama, rather today, Panama Canal is a man-made waterway that connects the Atlantic and Pacific oceans. Um, the proposal of the canal came about, you know, A number of centuries ago, especially due to widespread colonization, as an effort to reduce ship travel time. And there were a series of attempts. You know, there was a moment where the French were building the canal, um, and then the US acquired permission via a 1903 treaty. And the production of it was ultimately completed in 1914. So many of the laborers who built the canal ultimately came from the Caribbean, hence why Dr. Cornaldi is joined with us today. And so jumping sort of directly into our conversation, there were a few waves of West Indian migration to Panama.
1: Could you talk to us a bit about some of those waves? Certainly. So we have to head back to at least the 1850s with the Panama Railroad building that was actually connected to the gold rush and sort of this U.S. expansion effort on the part of kind of individuals who get upon themselves to sort of take entire tracks of various countries in Central America in particular. So in that initial construction, you have about 5,000 workers, many of whom are coming particularly from Jamaica, but from other islands as well. The next sort of major migration by Caribbean communities comes with the French attempt at building the canal, and that's also at the same time that United Fruit Company is growing extensively in Bocas del Toro, in particular in Panama. And so you have about 50,000 people migrating at that point in time. Again, so Jamaica is pretty large in that group, but you have people from Martinique, Montserrat. I mean, you really put a map of the Caribbean Sea and like people have someone, right? From all of the places at some point or another from there and actually made their way to Panama. Anytime I talk about Panama or my book, I always find a new kind of island connection, a new sort of experience. And I'm like, yes, it really became this Caribbean hub. And so that's the French Canal building. But then really the biggest number of people to make their way comes with the building that's taken over by the U.S. after the failed efforts by the French. And a lot of that is connected to just yellow fever and the brutality of the work. I mean, thousands of people died in the French building effort. And it was so damning that Jamaican officials refused for a while to actually send any more workers along because the destitution that many of those who survived found themselves with after the French Canal. So you actually have a lot more people from Barbados uh, head to Panama during that sort of U.S. finance canal building. It's immense. You have Barbados, Jamaica, you know, Martinique, Lucia, and sort of all the islands that you can think of. Making up roughly about 150 to 200,000 people who are there, already adding to the other migrant groups that I mentioned. And there's a lot of mobility that also happens with some of those making their way to other parts of Central America, Costa Rica, and Limon in particular, and then New York are things that are happening. But certainly the biggest hub is in you know Panama, and that's why you have you know a lot of societies. That are very island specific that emerge, but also a lot of associations that identify themselves with either British West Indian or West Indian that really flourish. And so you have spaces like Colón and Panama and Bucas del Toro that sort of become majority Caribbean, Afro Caribbean, and, and particularly Colón and Boca del Toro with sizable populations also in um, Panama City, the capital. And so, and all, when you look at the numbers of people that made their way, it actually ended up doubling Panama's population. So when you talk about a nation that sort of just emerged from independence in 1903 by 1914, right, having twice as many people and most of those kind of coming from these migrant populations and their descendants, that's kind of that early 20th century picture that you kind of have to think of when you imagine Panama at that point, moment in time.
0: One thing that I did sort of want to bring out is, especially in the sort of U.S. control of the canal building, they are bringing in officials who, you know, primarily um, have a context of race from the U.S. South, right? And so, how does that sort of affect, especially these migrant populations, but also mestizo or um, Black people who are already in Panama.
1: That's right. So what's fascinating is that a couple of historians have noted that most of the officials that are in the canal zone, white U.S. officials, are not Southerners, but they decide to nonetheless use Jim Crow practices. (laughs) So it definitely says something about the prevalence of kind of thinking of the South really in a global way and this idea that if you're dealing with a southernmost place, this is going to be the structure that's in place. And so what I found in terms of how that system impacts race relations on the isthmus is that first off, I realized that some of this discrimination that targets Caribbean migrants happens even before Panama is a republic, right? So already you have these practices happening from Colombia and they were directly linked to some of the pushbacks that you've had within Colombia against the sort of growing presence of black people in the liberal party, right? The liberal party was one of the sort of strongest political parties in late 19th century Colombia, sort of eventually also making its way into Republican uh, Panama. And there was a lot of tension in what to do with this elite base that sought to maintain this mostly Afro-descendant black population, right? Don't come and participate in this vision of a canal and sort of being this country that's accessible to the world, there was a limit to who was imagined as participating in that conversation. So you already have all these tensions that are happening regarding who can access citizenship and who can access political participation up to the early 20th century, you do have, you know, the extension of the vote has taken place, slavery has been abolished, et cetera. But the remnants of being a sort of at one point slave-dominating area is still there, right? You still have tensions between how do you maintain hierarchies of order based on things like race and class. And so by the time you have the United States, enter into the picture, it just adds an additional dimension now to already kind of bubbling tensions. And to it is added an additional note of extreme xenophobia and racism together that is very much connecting what I see as sort of white supremacy that had undergirded the prior tensions that you see before, right? Where there was this idea of how do you identify as a nation that isn't the United States or that isn't Colombia. And increasingly that idea is you've got to think of yourself as a white Spanish derived nation. And so those tensions are what you see. You have this competition to create this vision of the nation that certainly talks about mestizaje but it's a mestizaje that is rooted in white supremacy. Right? And it's rooted in a vision of certain groups just kind of disappearing, right? Or sort of being blended into one that has some deep problematic points to it. You also have, as I mentioned already, this rich population of Black Caribbean people who have remade entire cities. And then you have the United States in the canals and which has its own country, it's, its own country, its own regulations, its own systems. And decide that they're going to incorporate race-based and citizenship-based segregation. So they're gonna have the divisions that we are so familiar in thinking about in the US South with schools and housing, right? And payment structures very distinctly separating white US citizens from others. So sort of all of these sort of these competing ideas of race, nation, and belonging are happening at the time of the building of the canal and a couple of years that follow as well.
0: And this also sort of creates competition amongst black Panamanians and the black Caribbean workers, correct?
1: Absolutely. So one of the things that you sort of see is it creates competition for sure. And I think that would happen with any population that is there and a new migrant group is coming in, right? Suddenly you're wondering, well, who's being hired? as opposed to not and in the case of the US Canal Zone, having English speaking language was something that allowed you kind of a greater in. However, like the way that people are being treated is still quite discriminatory. And one of the things that becomes fascinating is how people who are not part of this black population, whether it is those who were in Panama prior to those migrating to the Caribbean or those migrants and their descendants, is that you have a focus on creating this narrative of good Blacks and bad Blacks. One that's sort of pointing to afro or those from the colonial era as sort of the good ones. And then those that are migrants from the Caribbean as the bad ones. And that narrative is pervasive. It's so pervasive and I see it as also informing the relations that you see between some Black people, right, You know, like various moments in time. Uh, see some black people um, who identify with a whether it is a Spanish or Latin ancestry very much critiquing the failure of other groups that they believe to not assimilate but then you also see unity you also see moments where they realize you know you're being targeted we're being targeted because we're black and we don't have power and at some point there's not going to be a way that you can differentiate between one group or the other right because the whole thing became well, these are not really Panamanian, So that adds a whole other dimension to it. So for example, Panama has specifically El Dia de la Etnia Negra to like emphasize this idea that there were multiple ethnicities within Blackness in Panama that you kind of like have to recognize and grapple with when you're talking about it. And for me, what's fascinating is thinking about how this overt discrimination that afro caribbeans experience later on really allows for a much stronger united front to counter some of the racism that continues, right, beyond the 40s and onward, sort of. There is discrimination happening, and it is rooted in the fact that we are not part of this white or so elite. and We've got to come to terms with that. Tensions are, you know, still there as with any, you know, multiplicity of ethnicities within any group, right? But there's certainly a shift that you start to see in discussions of, well, what are we fighting for, and who does this benefit in terms of the almost divide and conquer strategies that you start seeing along the way.
0: And so, your book also talks about a lot of the activism. Both in Panama and in Panama's diaspora, as we've all talked about movement and the afterlives of many of those migrants and their descendants. So, what were some of your findings? A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, so I decided to focus on,
1: like I said, all these groups that are grappling with what happens, you know, after the canal is over and you're dealing with policies that are rather discriminatory, you know, phobic or racist. So one of the groups that I look at is the Liga Cívica Nacional or the National Civic League that's created in the 40s and it specifically targets a change in the constitution that's made in 1941 that specifically denationalizes Black Panamanians whose parents uh, were from the non Spanish speaking Caribbean. So the first sort of constitution of the Americas that I found to have this written in, and I kind of show it to my students and they're all like, what? This ex- actually says this? And I'm like, yes, it actually is very specific in who is being kept out. So I look at how they used to go about putting petitions and other ways that they try to get people to challenge and have this constitutional reform rewritten and the uh, Time that it takes to actually get much change done. And then within New York, I also looked at a group called Les a scholarship granting organization created by African-American women, many of whom had some experience in the Canal Zone, had experience in Panama City specifically, and in New York, and kind of create what I found to be one of the earliest and really one of the most successful organizations of African-Americans that we're talking about things like education and access, and really united Afro Panamanians, African Americans who were similarly having these discussions about the need for equality and access, right? And so, one of the things that I found in looking at both of these groups was that teachers, educators get a lot of attention in the book. Like, they really were at the vanguard of like calling for a lot of changes. It was wonderful to be able to trace some of them and in, in yearbooks that sort of students put together to be able to find them in Panama and in New York. So there are a couple that I just I'm able to trace and sort of point to how they might have been a teacher at one point in the canal zone for one particular Woman that I look at leading the Higher Horizons program, which is trying to deal with bilingual education for low-income students in New York. So that's the activist framework that I focus on. A lot of civic groups that are directly trying to address inequities at a level of access to citizenship, to education, uh, and to kind of an overall Of a hemispheric civil rights that's led by Black people wanting to push their governments for greater, not just inclusion, but actually a recognition of these past histories of exclusion and violence.
0: One story that, you know, has come up in your work that I found really interesting was the story of Amy Denniston. So, could you talk a bit about her efforts as a writer and you know the Panama Tribune as sort of a site for Black women's articulations of self?
1: Yeah, so I encountered Amy Dennison in my sort of just perusals. I was going through microfilm of the Panama Tribune, and I sort of encountered this section, and I thought, well, what is this? Like a women's section, and I realized, oh, this is something that was happening with a couple of other papers in the Black press, but that I had not really read uh, extensive accounts of how it had played out in Panama. And so I decided to follow you know, uh, Dennison, and realized that she was someone who migrated with her family from Jamaica at a very young age, right? had the experience of obtaining a lot of her education through some of the private tutors that you have in private schools that have been created. In addition to uh, having had some access to now, so schools, and then realizing that through the newspaper, and she was tapped, I think, because she was also quite active with some of the Boy Scouts movements and Girl Scout movements that were taking place in Panama at this point in time, as someone who I think was viewed as like, you're going to be a good representative for the group, you know, you are sort of that nice and calm woman, right, that's going to lead the way. And what I love was that she was like, yeah, thank you for this honor. And then began to write some really amazing editorials that question things like, well, why are we assuming you know that these private schools are better than public schools, for example, where our children can learn Spanish and English? She also questioned some of the sexist narratives that um, were emerging in the press, right? And talked about the kinds of hopes that women should be able to To have, right? Whether there's just going to be a focus on being, right, that good mother, being that good provider, being that helper, right, which is a specific narrative of this early 20th century moment, or if it was going to be looking at other opportunities and and venues. So I, you know, was so excited to be able to sort of trace a little bit of her life as it was made available through the writing that she contributed to the Tribune and just wished I was able to find out more. And right? I was like, well, what happened afterwards? And that's certainly something that I myself am like, I think I might have found her in New York later, but I'm not sure, right? And so what I nonetheless, for me, was really interesting in talking and thinking through her work was realizing that for Black women, like we've always had to find spaces within institutions organizations that don't necessarily want us to be outspoken and then once we speak out suddenly it becomes about policing and that this policing can happen by members of your own community by people from the outside you're constantly being policed and so i've kind of now made it my mission to find all of these (laughs) black women who are pushing back and you know just demanding more. And so there are at least two more, you know, that I'm specifically writing, you know, there's an article coming out on another one and looking at a book purchase on another that I'm just like, who are these black women? They're just pushing back. Like they're like, you let me in a little bit and I'm going to blow this up because it's what you need to do to make some change. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> amazing amazing stories i'm looking forward to the articles you did bring up new york and so and that obviously makes me think of the panamanian parade yeah. and just <laughs> you know how diaspora works right and so given this sort of genealogy that we've gone through with thinking about how caribbean migrants have you know moved to panama but then also as we you know do all over movement is is a big part of who we are as a people and so I guess sort of my question then is, how do you conceive of this sort of Panamanian culture, especially as it's moved across so many places and islands, et cetera? And maybe how everybody's stories are a little bit different, but how do people sort of receive this kind of understanding of the multiple home places that Afro-Panamanians in particular may be from?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely I have to always like, sit down with someone and like explain how expansive they have to imagine the identities that African-Americans bring with them because there are all of these connections that you have to consider. And one of the things that you see is that kind of initial migration from the Caribbean to Panama, then Panama to Central America, Central America to New York, then back to Panama and back to sort of Jamaica, One of the things that I found is that for a number of people within one family, you have a narrative of at least three different migrations. This idea of multiple-like migrations—I think—Kim Butler sort of begins to talk a little bit about the importance of understanding that multiplicity of diaspora. Because for me, in talking about Afro-Panamanians, that's vital. You're going to encounter people who have had multiple migrant experiences multiple diasporic sort of linguistic experiences as well. And they're also going to have this interesting connection, right? Myself, my family, people that I know, those that are part of this diaspora, with having encountered U.S. empire in a way that, you know, outside of, you know, Puerto Rico, a sort of current colony, is sort of really hard for people to understand the like extensive way in which having the U.S. presence also then affects the kinds of conversations that you have about your sense of identity. So in thinking about what are those markers of defining and understanding afro american identity, you know, you have to root it in this vast Caribbean diaspora, and this vast multilingual capability, in uh, really Adapt and rich understanding of making diaspora. Right? It's not just about moving, it's about maintaining a conversation across spaces. Some of the people that I look at don't move necessarily, though themselves are the descendants of migrants, but they are so global in their scope. I mean, there are people who were reading about what was happening in France, in Martinique, in the United States, who were purposefully having these discussions that You know, now with social media and the internet, you know, people feel that you are can be really connected. But I see some of the people that I follow as trying to do that before we had the internet, right? They were, I'm sort of like amazed at the amount of knowledge and information that I see reprinted in things like the press, the conversations that people have about what's taking place in other areas that makes for a really unique understanding of one's position in the world, like you're constantly looking at what's happening, while also being very aware of the kind of Caribbean Panama that your ancestors made possible, like you can't really think about Panama without thinking about the Caribbean in a really extensive way.
0: Thank you so much. I mean, when I was thinking of doing this episode, I was like, we have to talk about the ways in which You know, it just, I think it sort of colors what we define as the Caribbean in a Mm -hmm. more expansive way. Um, You can't talk about, in the same way that you can't necessarily talk about London without thinking of Afro-Caribbean migration, it's definitely the same for Panama. So thank you so much. For sharing all of this history with us today, and lastly, of course, for my favorite question, it's one or a few of your favorite examples of this history in contemporary, you know, popular culture. Anything from, I'm always going to talk about music, but it could be novels, it could <laughs> be songs, it could be documentaries, etc.
1: Well, I'll start with sort of a probably an oldie now. It's like a 1999, but it's such a good one. Melvin Low Gooden. Uh, The Barbados to Panama, from Barbados to Panama, a play that um, really engages this very question of like, how do young people whose parents or grandparents are part of this Caribbean migration, how do they identify, how do they explain it to each other in schools, how do they uh, engage with some of the tensions and the times discrimination that they face. And so I find that it's like one of those really timeless that whenever I can assign and have as an opportunity to break down society in Panama at that point in time, thinking about what it can tell us about other spaces, it's so crucial, so crucial. And then more recently in terms of music, I'm really fascinated by the music of my El Caprado. uh, and in particular this year or last year she received a single called Cuidao. And what I love about it is most music, you know, from the Panamean diaspora, there are such a plethora of sort of musical formations that shape it, right? You sort of hear a little bit, again, of that tamborito. You also hear a little bit of that soca, a little bit of that sort of funk and soul. So it's a kind of nice, like, um, so you know, if you haven't seen it, it's got a nice visual video that has also been created as part of it. But I think a great discussion about how do we shape our own identity and if you've got to explain to someone, like, could you play me something that makes me understand a little bit of this complexity that you're talking about, say, play without, which is sort of like, I hear it and I'm like, oh, yes, you're right. The word already resonates, but the song and the video, I think, can be really informative and giving someone an in to that particular complexity
0: wayago stay tuned for strictly fact sounds where we connect our history to pop culture big shout out to dr corny aldi for her creative suggestions also check out folk songs calan manakam and when i was in calon both songs are referring to the major port city in panama where countless caribbean laborers entered and in many cases stayed and built their families we've even linked a version of calan manakam by stella booker Barb Marley's mother on our syllabus at strictlyfactspod.com. Lastly, we hope you remember us talking about Eric Walrand from our third episode, where we discussed the Guyanese-born writer and journalist's influence in the Harlem Renaissance. Before moving to the U.S. in 1918, Walrend also lived in Panama briefly, even working in the Canal Commission's health department. First published in 1926, his book Tropic Death is a series of short stories, some of which chronicle Caribbean men's difficult experiences building the Panama Canal. Check out our Strictly Fact Sounds resources and let us know what you think on social media. You know, I'm all for the music, so I'll definitely be checking it out after our discussion today. So please let everyone know where they can find
1: you on social media. I can be uh, followed at Twitter at Kate Corinelli. And um, yeah, besides that, I am also, you know, at Emerson College. You can follow me through my email there. I'm also through academia.edu. I also have some information there. So I'm always happy to talk to people who want to know a bit more about Panama, who want to know a bit more about the Caribbean and sort of Black diaspora formations anywhere in the Americas. Feel free to reach out. I love to have this conversation.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. We'll definitely link all of those on our show notes and in our Strictly Facts syllabus. So, again, thank you, Dr. Coronaldi, for joining us today and talking about Panamanian Afro Caribbean history. And thank you, listeners. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. Little more. Thanks for tuning in to Strictly Facts. Visit strictlyfactspodcast.com for more information from each episode. Follow us at Strictly Facts Pod on Instagram and Facebook
1: and at Strictly Facts PD on Twitter.